Hi everybody, welcome to the Patreon exclusive episode of No Country. This is P17. My name is J. David Osborne and that is Chris Sackness. Chris, how you doing? Uh, I'm filled with murder hornets and angry worms. There we go. <laughs> well, as long as they're not angry murder hornets, I think we're good, man. I think we can continue on. Uh, otherwise, you might have a problem. Because, I mean, murder's right in the name. Yeah, and it's like, well, that's what a subjective thing. I mean, they're just trying to get by, you know? Exactly. I mean... Trying to do a little murder, you know? Yeah. Just, just wake up, have their wasp coffee, and think about murdering. I've got a little stuff. bit of the old romper room doobie in me, too, still, you know? And uh, it's, you know, it's it's balance. It's about... It's about balanced chaos, you know? Right, right, exactly. Well, on the Free to Air episode, we just got done talking a little bit about the counterculture movement of the 60s and 70s, how it might relate to the current activist woke progressive paradigm that we're all kind of stuck in. And we took some a few detours. We talked about Hunter Thompson, and we ended off on a really good note, I think, talking about the the flattening of, of affect and, and all, this, all this kind of... Uh, how everything is sort of boring and sucks more now because of these kind of these thought processes and these ideologies. So where, where did you want to pick up from there and, and go? You had mentioned three, three uh, topics of discussion that you had with your students about this. I, 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 I'm ready to rock on that. And I think that flattening of affect and the deadening of texture and sound, you know, I, I remember when, we you know shifted over from cassette tapes to CDs, and everyone said, "Oh, the sound is so much better." And I thought, "Really? What are you talking about?" You know, mm-hmm. I mean, all of the the analog heart and soul just kind of got sucked out for a while. I, I think we've gotten past that a little bit, but I'm I'm still not certain about that. But before we get into this, I I, uh, I want to say a couple of things to remind our listeners that. Uh, Every episode, uh, I'm giving David five words to choose two to integrate into uh, the conversation uh, as, as seamlessly as possible. He's, he's doing a remarkable job that way. And we will have uh, some special prizes and awards for people who are really listening closely, who put in some guesses about what words David is choosing, because it's... Uh, We'll review this, I think, on a quarterly basis. What say maybe at the end of maybe Halloween, around Halloween, I think we might do a review of some of the choices that David's been given because it is an exercise that shows the the nature of of choice in the moment. Mm-hmm. It's a great improvisational exercise that I use it in my teaching. I really think it works. The other thing, which I think is really exciting, and, and David has really come to the party on, is imaginative real-time challenges, which uh, I'm about to give him one now. He has not heard this before. There's been no background or briefing. This is total ambush. Okay, Teaching mm-hmm. by ambush is a good technique, although it's frowned on by many people. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> But last time I uh, got David to do some imaginative doodling from the point of view of a spider. It's a New Guinea exercise about imagining a spider with a thread around a leg dealing with a center point on a shingle or a piece of paper. And uh, 
David did a beautiful improvisational drawing, which has been posted to uh, the, the Patreon uh, page. And I think it's really worth looking at because he, he did that in real time. And the idea from a New Guinea magic point of view, and this ties back to the Surrealists and to Dada, many, many different people have used this technique. But it's a model for time. It's, a, it's breaking the linearity of the river of time or the arrow of time and looking at it in a mo more mosaic, kaleidoscopic, a labyrinth type of way. And I think that was a, just a fantastic drawing. You really embrace that with great fervor and sincerity. And I look forward to your response to this test. Oh boy, here we go. Okay. I'm ready. I'm ready. There are, there are two elements to this. One is choice. Okay, you, you get a choice between two challenges. So door number one or door number two. What both of them have in common is that they're imaginative in the sense of an argument, a rhetorical position, okay? Mm -hmm. You don't have to elaborate on this position at the end of the episode in great detail. Concision is key. But this is creative in a more uh, expository, non-fiction, rhetorical sense, okay? Okay, gotcha. All right, here are your two choices. Topic number one, the great Paleolithic cave paintings of Southern Europe, Africa, and Australia, and other parts of the world, okay? Mm -hmm. Do they relate to today's street graffiti? Is street graffiti an extension, an evolution from the Paleolithic cave paintings, or is that not a fair comparison at all? Okay. That's topic number one. Topic number two in a very different register. And you're free to choose here. Again, no apologies are necessary. Topic number two is simply the question, can diarrhea ever be good? <laughs> okay. So while we are carrying on our discussion, which builds on from uh, the free to air episode, um, you will be thinking about that, and, and we're looking forward to you sharing um, oh your okay. position and a brief explanation at the end. Any questions? Okay. I have to choose one. Yeah, you have to choose one. You don't have to tell us now. You can. We'll we'll wait in suspense. Okay. All right. Sounds good. It sounds good. Okay. All right. Well, moving on or building on uh, from our discussion last uh, time in the free-to-air segment, trying to look at a topic that my students have raised. These are young people. This is, this is Gen Z. They're searching for answers, really as are we all. And their question was, how does today's woke, activist, politically correct, progressive, However you want to describe it, as David said. But he used the word paradigm, and I think that's very fair. How does that differ from the social activist counterculture paradigm of the 60s and 70s? So what we did, and we did this across a couple of sessions, I asked them to brainstorm out some trending words 
or phrases that they associate with today. And not surprisingly, trending was high on the list. Okay. Mm -hmm. The other three top performers were identity, gender, and race. Okay. Mm -hmm. So far, I'm not seeing anything that is that dramatically different than the issues uh, confronting the 1960s and the 70s, although you could say the Vietnam War isn't here. There is concern about international relations, uh, military presence, etc. But here are some of the other phrases, and I, I want to stress that these came out of the group. I'm, I'm curating and leading that, that group, uh, but, but these came from, from younger minds. Obesity, intersectional, relatability, pride, hate, I think that contrast is interesting, and then uh, a sample of here are some, some phrases. The optics aren't right. Hmm. Controlling the narrative. Blaming the victims. Okay, I think we've got... Um, <clears throat> Oh, pronouns would be one other word that slipped in there as an individual word. Mm -hmm. But I think that's a basis to start with, David. What what do you think about that as a constellation of of language and concept to get us started? I think that that's great. Should I touch on some specific phrases here? Um, Or just comment on them as a a body? I'd like to hear your, your specific comments, actually. Okay, great. So the first one that I want to talk about that is controlling the narrative, because that is a big thing on both sides. There's a lot of talk. The narrative is always, uh, you know, as you've pointed out very astutely in previous episodes that we've done, the narrative is always on the other side. If it's something that the right is saying and you're on the left, it's a narrative and it's being controlled. And of course, if you're on the side of truth and justice, then it just then it just is true. Right. Uh, but I read, you know, I'm going to become a Byung-Chul Han quote machine here soon, but he's, uh, he very astutely also says that there is no such thing as narrative anymore. There's no more narrative. There's only additive. And oh, I, I think that, that. And I, I think that there is a lot to kind of talk about with that because I think that his whole idea about it being this nonstop informational flow that really doesn't conform to a narrative, I think that both sides are correct in that there there are people who are trying to control a narrative, right? Uh, and I also think that both sides are correct in thinking that their their sides are, are, are narrative-free because there is no real narrative. There's only the slow and steady death by a thousand cuts that is the constant news stream on television or on social media. So that controlling the narrative is, is a... Is a very key point I think for our time right now. The optics aren't right is something that I've been thinking a lot about lately because I've been watching Better Call Saul, which is the Breaking Bad spinoff about the sleazy lawyer Saul Goodman. Right. Yeah. It's it's it, it's, a, it's a slow burn. I love every second of it. I think it's fantastic. Um, but what the character of Saul ends up being really good at is presenting optics to Pete. He's a good salesman. And part of the fun of the show is watching this guy 
basically sells snow to the Eskimos, right? He can sell anything. He gets a job at a cell phone kiosk, and they somehow manage to make a man working at a cell phone kiosk interesting because of how well he's able to to sell these things, basically by pretending that they are free from government spyware and that if you're trying to dodge the IRS, you need one of these you need one of these special phones that he's selling. Uh, but his, what I noticed watching the show was how important optics are, the way that he dresses, the way that he presents himself, uh, the framework with which he presents his sales pitch. He has to read his mark first because he's a con man, right? He's a con yeah. man who becomes a lawyer. Uh, and I, I honestly found it very illuminating and kind of helpful in my own way uh, because I'm somebody who almost never thinks about the optics of what I'm saying. And it's why up to this point, I've been such a, a poor salesman of pretty much every project that I've been involved in because I'm not, I'm not thinking about the optics. However, when the phrase, the optics aren't right, is used, it's almost always in, in terms of, uh, you know, kind of the wrong person saying the right thing. That's always what I think. Because you're not saying that, that somebody's saying something untruthful. You're saying that it looks bad to say that yes. something is truthful at this moment. And that is a very, to me, that blows my mind, dude, because the truth is the truth and you should just, you should just say it. But as I've said, it hasn't necessarily helped me uh, to not get canceled. So I might not be the best person to ask about this kind of thing. Well, it's interesting that you uh, focused on the, those two phrases first, because I mm -hmm. think they do relate and the, the interesting thing about, you know, controlling the narrative, I mean, that, that, that itself is just such a bizarre thing. Because as you point out, we, we have a sort of defined narrative as what uh, one doesn't agree with. It's what the other side is doing. And, but controlling the narrative, it reminds me of the old, you know, very famous Green Bay Packer coach, Vince Lombardi. And his mm -hmm. first, his first, first edict was control the ball. So we've got a weird blend of game and war right mm -hmm. there. And we absolutely have a denial of any sense of the narrative being part of discourse, of conversation, dialogue, exchange. For all of the, the talk today of diversity and inclusion, or respect, et cetera, et cetera, or concern about offending people. I mean, controlling the narrative is really an aggressive, assertive, uh, rhetorical, delimited starting point that presupposes a fundamental and irresolvable adversarial situation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I, yeah. I think that, that is an amazing uh, amount of negativity to embody in one uh, three-word phrase. Right. I love how you point out the optics aren't right, which has to do with a con man. And mm -hmm. you know, we, we've we've talked earlier about you know the the whole nature of of cons and scams. Many of our favorite writer heroes have been obsessed with cons and scams and and i think you and i are pretty interested in you know baudelaire said americans love to be fooled 
And P.T. Barnum said that about, I mean, his whole life career was sort of based on that. And we've earlier pointed out a kind of weird uh, linkage between P.T. Barnum and uh, our most recent former president. Uh, so all of those, those things are live to air and, and are definitely, definitely trending now. They, they start, though, with, I think, a basic point of view that surface and substance are fundamentally and essentially at odds mm, and yes. that there is an adversarial position that is not about a conversation or dialogue or any kind of mutual growth and adjustment no retooling the factory here no my way or the highway that's what's going on yeah and i think I love the idea that surface and substance are completely at odds because it really speaks to what I see being all surface and and no substance. It's almost as if once you get to the substance of a thing, people begin to lose interest. <laughs> they just they just want the gloss. They just want the kind of the, the the I guess maybe substance doesn't lend itself as well to juicy gossip as surface does. If everything's on the surface level, you can say, you know, well, so-and-so did this, and oh, isn't that terrible? Then you get to the substance of it, and you're like, well, you know, he robbed that store to feed his family, and it becomes less sexy, less interesting, I think, at that point. So the you said pride and hate were two of the words, and they were right next to each other. And it's so funny because, to me, those words used in the proper context can actually be synonymous in our modern discourse right because what does uh what is it what would it mean to you if i said that i had white pride yes that's a good example it, it i would i would that's a very very tight uh performance of of the linkage and the problem and alternatively what would it mean to you if i said i had gay pride well, I think that the answer to that is that there is such social pressure to take an entirely different optic and apply it to that, uh, mm -hmm. that I would have no problem in saying, well, that's an entirely different thing. And, and I do believe that, in fact. I think there, there I do is, too, yeah. I mm -hmm. don't think there is a connection. And I think there, there, there is a very, very big point of difference. And... It's a little bit like saying, well, there aren't marginalized people. You know, no one's saying right, that. Right. You know, no exactly. one is saying that at all. But on the other hand, I think that there is something that needs to be explored in this conflict that you've raised that, that mm -hmm. is valid. And we should at least be able to talk about that. Um, mm -hmm. Because I think if you take that off the board entirely, you are in conflict with the basic structure of language and how those two words do relate to each other. Because you can pull those out, you can pull pride and hate out of this, you know, hyper uh, active, insanely frenzied socio-political context, mm -hmm. put it in a more mundane context of like, well, how you cook at home, you know, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, what you take right. pride in in terms and what you what you hate about it, you know. I mean, mm -hmm. it, 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 we overheat everything because we predetermined 
that the only arena arena that is worth discussing has to do with group identity, with socio-political issues, with questions of power. We, we've, we've adopted this uh, essentially neo-Marxist position. And, and so the whole thing becomes adversarial and superheated. But mm -hmm. if we pull those two words out and look at them in a more abstract or, or you know, if possibly a neutral or mundane setting, there is a relationship between them. So therefore, I think we should be able to look at that connection wherever they appear. Do you think that pride has a, has a naturally adversarial tinge to it, no matter how you use it, whether it's white pride or gay pride? Because it's, it's, it's in contrast to things. The problem with white pride as a, as a phrase is that it presupposes that the other more marginalized races, because white people still make up a significant proportion of the country, are somehow against you. And typically what that leads to is the idea that there shouldn't be immigration, that there should, in some cases, be uh, whites-only mini countries or states or bars or whatever. But, I mean, you know, even with gay pride, I mean, it's, it's sort of positive. It's, it's putting itself against a, a more dominant culture. And so I think we root for that more, and rightly so, because it's, you know, it's an underdog story. You know, so, but, but the fact is that they're, they're both in an adversarial relation to each other. Now, I don't know how that fits in with taking pride in your, your work. So that might, that might trouble the waters a little bit, but I'll, I'll stop talking for a second here. And, well, and I think it's important that the waters do get troubled, and I think you're doing that you know, uh, complete, with complete validity, and, and there's a reason for it, because I think it, they are troubled waters. The way I think of it is that there is, a, in my mind, there is a very big difference which can't be accounted for uh, linguistically or grammatically between being proud and having pride or taking mm. pride. You know, I think those verb form, I think there is something in that. I think to be proud, I often think of that, of, of being proud of, of, of something done. It's, it's not a big generalization. It's being proud of a certain piece of work. It's being proud of a certain skill. Uh, it's being a proud person in, in oftentimes that to me, that means something good and also something very difficult, you know? Right. And I, ha I think of a few of my, my friends, I think of my mother who we interviewed, mm -hmm. she's a proud person. I don't think that's always a good thing, but I think it's at the heart of some of her great, uh, you know, the finest points that make mm -hmm. her who she mm -hmm. is. Yeah. It also seems to me that pride seems uh, it seems actually more fixed, as if it's a done deal, as if um, it's not an ongoing issue. I, I, and that's maybe purely a personal association. But it does seem to me that there's a very, very major question of individuality versus group identity. And I think there is, therein lies the real problem. The other word that I wanted to touch on is relatability. As writers, we've encountered this probably our whole career when you send a manuscript to an agent and they say, well, I just didn't find anybody relatable in this text. Mm -hmm. And 
uh, writers correctly, I believe, say, well, you know, maybe you're not supposed to relate to this. Maybe, you know, you're supposed to celebrate the fact that this person is different than you, or maybe being different is just interesting. And I think that relatability in terms of these, uh, in terms of these buzz words, I feel like there's something really sinister about relatability. I think that there's something to what we were talking about, about the flattening of, of affect and, and making things textureless and bland and gray, right? But it, it's all, it's because everything can then relate to each other, right? Everybody looks the same and acts the same, has the same interest. It's all relatable. I think there's a real, again, sinister quality to the word relatable. I couldn't agree more. I think that this is a really critical aspect, certainly of contemporary uh, fiction and, and commercial entertainment, you know, TV and film. I think it, it presupposes that we eliminate uh, not only you know the question of likability, uh, we, we might accept heroes and villains, but we don't accept heroic mythic figures because we've, we've grown ironically small and worried and unable to reach past to the, the heroic levels of, of earlier times, unless, unless they're superheroes, action figures. And then there's a kind of you know, explicit comic book and young adult children sort of element. Uh, I mean, I think back to a, uh, Annie Dillard is a, a, a writer who I really admire. Um, she's, I haven't really read anything first for a while, but I, I've, I've, I've certainly taught her um, her nonfiction works, but I remember she was a keynote speaker at uh, you know some sort of AWP or some sort of major writers thing uh, quite a long time ago, and um, she asked the question referencing uh, the first sentence of um, uh, Dickens' David Copperfield. She said, "Are we the heroes of our lives, or is that precisely why?" We need to read New Yorker stories because we no longer believe in heroes. Mm. And I think that what we get is either a flattened sense of that where we don't allow the complexity of, of character that really is interesting. I'm very excited about Denzel Washington playing Macbeth, incidentally, coming up in a Joel um, Cohen take on that. Um, or we get sensationalized, juvenile, two-dimensional uh, superhero characters, like the kind I would yeah. get my grandmother to draw for me. She was a commercial artist in her youth, and I would brainstorm out these, you know, silly, the mesmerizer or the grasshopper mm -hmm. or, you know... Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, Dr. Heat, you know, and she would end, she would draw them. And of course they were, uh, her drawings were much better than my ideas, but you know, I was like six or seven years old. But I think that those are the poles. We get a kind of flattened affect or a kind of sensationalist tabloid, uh, you know, pretty cheesy uh, comic book approach to likability and relatability and, you know, identity yeah. because we have to feel comfortable. Yeah, a comfort uber alles, right? But 
two things. Number one, you mentioned mentioned superheroes, and I have to throw this out because this was in the news lately. But apparently, the estate of Steve Ditko, uh, who created who created Spider Man, uh, not Stanley, Steve Ditko, uh, apparently has a legal claim to the character of Spider Man and could take it back uh, once. Uh, 2023 is when that will be up for grabs and so they're going to litigate they're going to try to get the rights back to this character and of course i mean this doesn't mean that there won't ever be spider-man in movies ever again it just means that the ditko estate will have some kind of say in it and get paid to do so right so it's it's wonderful it's lovely but seeing the comments from histrionic comic book fans who are my age or older i'm sorry to say (laughs) <laughs> gave me no no small pleasure as I was reading them, watching people like, is, does this mean that Spider-Man is, is, is going to go away? I, I, I can't help it. I, I fucking loved it. I loved every second of it. So that's neither here nor there. Secondly, you mentioned a phrase that I think is very uh, compelling and interesting, so I want to put it to you in the form of a question. Okay. Chris, are you the hero of your life? Yes. Hmm. I don't know as I believe that all the time, but I think that, well, let me, would I be equivocating to say that I am the protagonist? Um, well, I don't think, I think everybody, I think everybody would, would probably say that they're the protagonist of their life. I think. I would definitely say that, but... I want to know if you're the hero. No, okay, look, I think that is wimpy. No, I'm going to go with hero. I'm going to go absolutely double down, all in. Let's do it, baby. Go for it. So you are the hero. Why? Because I think I found my way to the whole notion of hero, villain, subject, and object through some aspect of myself which I do not take any credit for. I don't think one has to take credit for Mm -hmm. uh, a heroic uh, position. I I think of it as, well, who else was going to do it? But I I really Mm -hmm. do trust some inner mechanism, some inner uh, good fortune, some inner challenge, uh, some inner curse uh, to... To be in that. I mean, I, I feel like there are certain uh, moments in my life, whether of, of great crisis and trauma or tremendous joy. And as one of my uh, mentors said, and actually Hunter Thompson said this once in a very interesting way. He said, you know something is going to happen and it's going to involve you. And my mentor friend said, uh, you have an intuitive tingle or shock or maybe it's an odor or a a piece of music, but something in you, your whole inner being vibrates so that you really are aware of your inner being. You know, there's lots of parts of our beings that we, we aren't aware of and we don't really want to think too much about but there are moments when suddenly we think, I am mm-hmm. about this incident. This, is, this relates to me. You know? It's not mm-hmm. always mm-hmm. about us. Or it's not always about you. you know, we, always know, we know that. 
But what I'm mm-hmm. saying is there are some things that really are about us. And mm-hmm. then uh, that's a, a challenge and an opportunity. I mean, I think we, we live in fear of those and we live in delight. Yep. Excellent answer. Happy to hear it. I was hoping that would be what you would say. <laughs> well, thanks for you know putting some pressure. I think this is a good example of how pressure and ambush is mm-hmm. part of... And you've said this before about a little bit of, of a certain kind of combat is mm-hmm. absolutely necessary and salutary. It it's really is. It just is. Yeah, and I think that when people are faced with the question of whether or not they're the heroes of their lives, I think you have to think about what the alternatives to that would be. Are you the villain of your life? For some people, actually, yes. And I think that if they did some real soul searching, it's a rough conclusion to come to but you can actually be the villain of your own story. Uh, maybe worse, because there's less agency involved, in fact, there's very little agency at all involved, is to be the spectator of your life, right? That's what you don't, that's what you really don't want to be. You don't want to be sitting in the stands and kind of watching things pass you by, but to be the here, I, th- I think that we have to get back to these bold, um, these, these bold proclamations that have just been steamrolled over by uh, irony and self-effacement and, you know, aw shucks attitude, right? Yeah. You want to be the, the, the fucking hero, man. You want to be the hero of your When you die, you want to say, like, I was the superhero, right? I, I, did, I did things. I made myself better and my family better and my friends better. I was the, I was the hero. So glad to hear it. <laughs> I think that word, that you know, hyphenated word, self-effacement, is so important because this really is at the heart. I think, in a tonal, deep, group, societal mood sense of what the problem is, we have a massive psychosis in the form of self-effacement, self-esteem totally. crisis, identity, yep. and yep. all of these mechanisms of social media platforms are not really the cause of that. I'm not forgiving any of the big tech stuff, even though I participate mm-hmm. in a few of those platforms. But I do think that it's it's uh, naive to think that they are causal entirely. I don't think that, I think that's giving them way too much power. They have simply harvested a very pathetic whirlwind of neurosis and mm-hmm. lack of community. Um, and and that's I mean what what better expression, you know, for the obsession with identity can there be other than mm-hmm. a, an implicit lack of community? People are just so lonely and embattled. Right. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you something. I mean, this won't surprise you, but I, I, I it, it it was surprising to me to read directly a book in manuscript uh, has crossed my desk, written with three authors. Uh, it's a very serious, detailed analysis that has, it started 10 years ago. One of the authors is a media studies scholar. One is a cultural psychologist, and one is a pretty straight academic sociologist. But they have been monitoring the media and looking at the response to the media in a, in a polling sense. How do people feel about it? How do they react to it? 
And interestingly enough, one of their major conclusions, this is what they're hinging their, their, their proposition on, is that in the last 10 years, as major mainstream outlets have incorporated more and more fully tweets, photography, video, comments from the general populace. So more participation, more ownership by more people, right? That's what it means. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, the sense of empowerment has declined. People feel less trusting of the media. They feel less involved. They feel more right. like puppets. Isn't that odd? Yes, because I think... So it has to do with your spheres, your spheres of influence and your, your community and, and what you can actually physically change in the world. Before all of this, when newscaster was an actual job that you might might have some kind of respect for, you thought of them as being the people who gave you the news and who at times even gave you the opinions about the news because there were these things called opinion columns that were separate from from the news um and in proportion you, they weren't they weren't the whole deal correct and you had a job where you maybe had a boss you didn't have complete control and influence but you had some some feeling of being the master of your domain even if it's just your own couch your own home right your children uh, and, and maybe maybe your spouse, what, what, what have you. When you expand that field out from what you can directly influence to the big wide world, which neither you, the listener, nor Chris or I have any say in whatsoever, right? I think you get a bit of a Pavlovian learned helplessness going on, right? To the point where now when you hear the, you, you don't even try to push against the cage anymore, right? Um, so I think, I think it has, a, I think it has to do with that scale and sphere, basically. You know, it, it's so very interesting. I, I mean, the way you've just framed, because this is, I think, an emergent theme of ours. And I, I, and it's one of the three key pillars of, of crisis that we face, which I, I don't want to preempt them too much, but I, I, I think that, uh, the way I've, I've got it written down is how empowerment erodes agency how empowerment erodes agency which mm. is counterintuitive and yet also completely the Jungian idea of things become its opposite but without going into too much more detail now I, I really encourage people to look at and I'm not endorsing uh, this individual or uh, his belief system and uh, program. But L. Ron Hubbard mm -hmm. uh, came up with some really hard-hitting truths, I think, about human nature, human nature within a mass commu communications frame, and a modern era of ideology controlling whole... Well, controlling economy, in a, in a way. And he outlines this principle really, really effectively. And in almost like a CIA operations manual sort of sense, you know, how do you do propaganda and brainwashing and winning hearts and minds? Well, 
Empowerment erodes agency. You know, I think that's just a beautiful, and it's also a great drug dealing model. I mean, that's all the drug dealers I've known. You know, and it's 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 so connected with how the whole marketing uh, as machine works. You know, build your own burger, customize the plan to suit your needs. You're pre-approved. You know, we're empowering you. Yeah, right. You know? Sure, right, right, right. Again, going back to it, you simply be you simply internalize the master and slave dialect. Exactly. That's all really that's is, all you're doing. That that is the model. And to the point I mean it's like the invisible pet fences, you know? I mean in, unless the collars unless you put the collar on yourself, it, it's not really working, you know? You've right. gotta be the one. You've got to be the prison master, you know? And and nothing can get you free of that. Um, well, that just well, made me think of a great scene. I just sorry, this is it's just so connected. Little Dorrit is one of Dickens' overlooked big novels, but I think it's one of the best. Um, mm-hmm. It has a couple of his greatest lines in it. But one near the end, there's a fantastic scene where Little Dorrit, who is the hero, she's truly the hero of her story. Um, has managed to achieve a great feat. She's gotten the, the family out of debtor's prison. She's arranged this great dinner. And the father cracks. He is back in time, back in prison. He's having a delusional hallucination type of breakdown. And it's a very, very powerful performance of how we can be our, our prisons, you know, we can be our prison guards. And that's the most effective imprisonment there can be. Well, totally, because you see influencers online uh, who sort of in their own way, they they act as a, as a proxy for the people who view them, right? I mean, people want to kind of be like them. They, they want, they're, they're living out their lives through through these, these people, right? And I think that, you know, this idea of becoming your own your own prison guard uh, has morphed into getting to choose which external prison guard you want, right? And it's by choosing these people <laughs> who have these these lives that you want to emulate but will never be, quite be able to, you're, you're creating these new bars around yourself. And sometimes it can be really insidious too. I mean, people do it and they don't even think that they're doing it. I've seen people all the time on Twitter with handles that are like, you know, trash dumpster, you know, uh, there's this whole going back to the self-effacement thing. There's this kind of impetus online to be like, I'm just a mess. You know, I'm an alcoholic. I'm a drug addict. I'm a slut. I'm all this kind of stuff. Right. Look, look, look at me, you know. Uh, but basically you're cre- you're creating this by creating this identity. Right. By taking these kind of words back, you know, trash, slut, whatever, and empowering yourself, you're, you're digging a hole for yourself that you can that you can then be trapped in essentially and um i think people might be wondering right now okay well then what what's the what's the answer right you guys are talking about all this stuff and how you become your own prison guard and you know basically you you internalize a master and slave dialectic uh the answer so far as i see it is to uh get to a point where you have a community that has shared values and symbols right to where you no longer have to put the entire burden 
on on yourself as an individual, right? And you have to talk a lot less, which is an ironic thing to say on a podcast. But but you have to talk <laughs> a lot less and experience a lot more. So that's a beginning of an answer, I think. I think that is a good beginning of an answer. And I think that um, one of the things that we can practically do is, uh, I mean, a, a very common phrase, I mean, I, I think we all see it all the time, is, you know, consolidate your debt. Uh, and I, I love the, the adversarial stance there because it's an assumption, well, that you, you do have debt. And it's a very good assumption in America, as we know. But what about distributing debt? What about parallel distributed processing? We know that phrase. What about parallel yes, distributed self-interest? You know? Yep. How, okay. how does that I mean? We've been looked at, you know, the cooler ring in, um, in the Trobrian mm-hmm. Islands and other forms of uh, indigenous populist social organization. It's incredibly interconnected. It's enormously complicated with lots of constant obligations. And, you know, it, it, it's a churning dynamic cycle of interdependence. But it works. Whereas our idea is like, well, let's just consolidate our debt. We'll limit our networks and communities. We'll deal with the social media world anonymously. We'll present a certain front to the world. We're all window dressing all the time, aren't we? And we don't really have that much to sell, you know? And Mm -hmm. that that technique is just not working. It's actually killing us. Mm -hmm. I don't have anything to add. That's that's pretty much perfect. And that is precisely what i was getting at this dispersal right not putting everything not putting all of your eggs into this one basket you know spreading out no fortress no siege it goes yeah. back to that stop building the fucking fortress <laughs> because you're just gonna get the, the sieges keep coming because you keep building exactly right i mean when i was exposed to that idea for the first time in my life when i was i was younger than you are in, in the Solomon Islands, I, I just thought, my God, that is not a principle of, of war or any kind of military uh, experience per se. It is a much bigger, bigger life and community idea of mm-hmm. stay open, stay on the move, stay flexible. Why must we all have an agenda and a social platform that everyone can identify with? I mean, I get very frustrated and bored when I know someone and I, I can predict exactly what their position is on everything. You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. isn't that the definition of boredom? Absolutely. And I, <laughs> I've put this on online before <clears throat> and, to, you know, in so many words, I basically said I would be knocked out of my chair especially with writers. Writers fall very much these days into lockstep with whatever the kind of dominant liberal uh, paradigm that comes down the pipeline is. And they'll shift it with no respect for what they thought two weeks ago, right? They'll just adopt it wholesale like they're shopping for clothes. So I say, I will be knocked out of my chair if I heard any one of you express anything that was even mildly contradictory to what the dominant narrative is right now. Knocked out of my chair. (laughs) (laughs) 
just mm. once I would love to hear it. I would love to see one of these people, you know, say something wild, right? Even something not even wild, just something mild, right? Like, I don't know. Maybe like, well, hey, you know, if maybe if people don't want to get a vaccine, maybe we should leave them alone. I would fall out of my chair, right? I would because that's that's not the line right now. That is not what you say. Um so anyway, that's I think that's that's pretty much perfectly said. I think we did that well. I have an answer to the question if you want to pivot to that. I do because I want to give you a little bit of time to to uh, to support that. This is a little bit more uh, well conceptually sort of rich. So hit us up. Okay, I felt very attracted to the first question. I love that idea. Is modern graffiti basically akin to Paleolithic art? However, I can't pass up a good diarrhea question. Yes. So. Okay. I'm going to go with diarrhea. Uh, <laughs> Fantastic. So, I think that diarrhea can be advantageous at certain points. And I'll tell you a story to demonstrate what I mean. When I was 16 years old, my friend Eric got a truck. It was a 2000, a 2000, I think. Maybe it was a 99, a 2000 Toyota Tacoma. And we would go to a mutual friend of ours house and we would play guitar and we would drink Everclear. Because when you're that age, the only thing you're interested in is getting as fucked up as humanly possible. Because you don't you don't know your limits yet, right? Right. So we were we were drinking Everclear and I'm sorry to say Eric was joyriding around the neighborhood, drunk out of his mind. Not endorsing it, but it happened. Don't pretend like you've never done anything like this, listener. Maybe you haven't, I don't know. So we're driving around and I'm sitting in the bed of the truck and I start to feel my bubble guts. The bubble guts are starting, right? And I think, oh, <laughs> that's, that's not good. No. I'm driving around and, I'm, and I'm, I'm back there with my friend Lance and, and we get out and we go to pee. We're peeing on some hay and a little bit of diarrhea comes out like a teaspoon. Not a bunch, just, just a little bit. And I clench my butt cheeks up really quickly and I think, okay, I'm, I'm probably good. I just need to, you know, calm down a bit, what have you. So I get back in the bed of the truck, and Lance looks over at me, and he slurs, you know what we should do? And I say, what? He said, we should car surf. <laughs> and I said, that, that is a fantastic idea. So we stand up in the bed of the truck, we tell Eric to hit it, and he's rocking down the road, going as fast as he can, and we're, you know, we're standing up, and the wind's in our hair, and it's this beautiful, beautiful moment. And then Eric takes a turn too quickly. And I try to find purchase on the top of the cab, but I can't find it. So I begin to slip and I'm thrown from the truck along with Lance. And I hit the ground. And when I hit the ground, the diarrhea just exploded all the way down my pants to my socks. And so I get up. And I kind of brush myself off and we get back in the truck. We're actually in front of Lance's house. So we kind of leave him there groaning in the lawn, right? I hop into the truck and I say, Eric, you got to take me home. I just shit myself. And so he takes me home. And so the point of this story, why diarrhea can be beneficial, right? Is that I think that I was too embarrassed to die. Oh. 
That's a beautiful line. That's a beautiful line. Mm. Well, I I think that's fabulous in so many ways, and I just want to uh, highlight a few of them. I, I don't think I, they need to be highlighted because I think the performance speaks for itself. But in the context of a rhetorical argument, mm -hmm. I think it's important for listeners to note that David from the start chooses the mechanism of story as the nature of his argument, which is a very powerful strategic choice. It's very different than making a typical adversarial argument of choosing a kind of dialectic point, thesis, antithesis, synthesis, you know? It, it's not that, it's, an, it's a point of view of engagement. And then instantly the story starts to unfold. What kind of vehicle was it? It was a Toyota Tacoma. What's the drink? Everclear. What did they piss on? Hey. You know? And that's, that's using storytelling techniques, which, of course, as a writer, you know, we kind of expect that of, of good writers. But this is something that, that everyone can learn. This is part of the writing process that can be taught. But it's a beautiful example of how engagement really works, of how self-effacement, which is what that story is about, how that does open up possibilities for actual reflection on the part of listeners, how it engages us with the ethos. Ethos is the right to speak, the, the credibility of the speaker or writer. And that's performed from the very first words through to the end. And I think a beautiful takeout point in real time of too embarrassed to die. I can't really imagine anything more human and sincere than that. And I, I wish we had more of that circulating in, in contemporary writing and in, in, in contemporary thinking. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. Very, yeah. very well done. Thank you. That first one was tempting, though. It was tempting. Well, and, I, that, and I had a whole I, thing. I won't go into it because I'm not supposed to, but we can talk about that some other time. Yeah. Because it look, is interesting. I, I did think that you were going down the path you did. And I thought, I thought I'm going to throw him this, you know, because he's going to be interested in that. And he's going to know that that is something worth talking about. And that it, it, it does relate to the, the whole thematic framework we've been dealing with of, of how does the present relate to the past, whether it be the 1960s and 70s or 10 or 30,000 years ago. But I, I did know that you couldn't really resist the diarrhea. But what you did with that was, was just, uh, you, you made the diarrhea work for you, which is exactly yeah. what the challenge was. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I mean, diarrhea can be really important. There, you know, it's your body trying to expel something that's not supposed to be in there too so there's a lot that you can also say about listening to your gut and the fact that the most neurons <laughs> we listen have to are your in our butt brain, and listen to your butt exactly the most neurons that we have are in our brain obviously and then the second highest concentration of neurons are found in our heart and then the third largest concentration are in our guts so your gut thinks and your heart thinks just like your brain thinks and um Basically, I am of the idea that your body can make mistakes, but it doesn't make many of them. 
it's a it's a very uh, evolution is a beautiful thing and we've evolved over time for our guts to be like hey something's not right here and I think the amount of diarrhea that we see in modern times is indicative of a shit diet literally right I mean mm-hmm. and, I, and I think that uh, I don't necessarily looking back on that story I don't think it was the Everclear that did it it could have perhaps been maybe the Taco Bell <laughs> that I had before that or you know who knows what I was eating at the time my diet was just complete crap but but anyway I mean that that's all less fun I think than the story but I do think that diarrhea is is important but if you're perhaps having diarrhea every day you might want to uh, think about your life choices and and specifically your dietary choices but give me give me a tip give me a tip here okay well I, I want to uh, foreshadow that either for our first happy hour or for next episode I do have a tip coming up that I think is mind-blowing. Uh, it's not mind-blowing because I thought of it, and uh, I'm not the first person to have thought of it. I'm never going to claim originality on any subject. But I do know it's, it's, it's magic. It really is magic if it's applied. But this time, uh, I want to keep something simple in principle, uh, and it's something that smart people do usually by habit certainly educated people do most writers and language oriented people that I know do this without any question but I want to give a specific example of the importance of it and how it pays off it is treasure hunting by definition in other words looking for definitions of words being able to look at words that we think we know those are, the, I think, the most important lessons as starting points. We think we know it, so we kind of overlook it and don't really look deeper. David Lynch says we're all detectives, and I would say we're all detectives and explorers, and it's worth checking things out. So the word in question that got me curious again was caliber. Caliber. Mm-hmm. We know that we're probably first from the point of gunsmithing or gunmaking, uh, and we can think of examples, you know, a nine millimeter handgun. We know that caliber applies to the diameter of a bullet or cartridge and is then by association related to the bore of the weapon that chambers that projectile. That's pretty clear. Caliber is also a crucial word in horology, watchmaking, clockmaking. And it's really worth checking out uh, some of the terminology that's involved in, in clockmaking because that is one of the essential mechanical skills and sciences that so much of our scientific view hinges upon. A lot of great minds and talented hands have been involved in this. A lot of the history of certainly uh, Western Euroscience derives from the idea of watchmaking and the metaphor, you know, the blind watchmaker, as our friend mm-hmm. and arch villain mm-hmm. Richard Dawkins talks about. Movement, caliber reply, applies to the movement, the movements, the key movements of a timepiece. Mm-hmm. And it too has some relationship to measurement, to diameter, okay? So there's something going on there. I thought, well, that's interesting. So I started chasing back the word caliber. And you get back to ancient Greece and the word kalapos, K-A-L-A-P-O-U-S, 
which applies to a shoemaker's last, which is another nice little phrase. A shoemaker's last, which is the wooden model, wooden model used to uh, shape shoes around. And there, are you, there were a couple. So it's not the last one that that, that shoemaker had. It's, it's just an interesting turn of phrase. So I thought, well, that's okay. We've got gun making. We've got clock making. We've got a link back to shoes. And then I thought, you know, the caliber of someone's a personal caliber in the sense of character. I thought, that's interesting. So here we have something, a key word that relates to very physical, tangible, material, practical, and historic skills, but also to the very subjective, complicated world of, of character, value, moral and ethical integrity. And across the board, there is a sense of diameter, of measurement, of measurement. But there's also something else. There is implicit across all of these definitions, and I think it gets really interesting when we look at personal caliber. There is an idea of mass production and repeatability. You know, that's very odd. I mean, yeah, we're, we, we can crank things out with robotic factories and stuff now, but even back in the original ancient Greece idea, there's the idea that the shoemaker is making multiple shoes. Cartridges and bullets get made in, in abundance. You know, guns are mass produced. Character, individual integrity, that's odd that that should be associated with mass production. Mm. But I want to leave that with you as a tip to, in this era of constant identity obsession and how we define ourselves and how we customize our plans and create our own pizzas and build our own burgers, Think about how individuality is so deeply linked with a kind of mass production, uh, mass quantity concept. I think that's a real fault line key to some of the modern malaise, you know? Because no, my funny. idea of individuality is, is, not, is not sitting comfortably with mass production, you know? I think there's something I want to negotiate with that. So I, I leave that thought with you to, to kind of unravel and decode uh, some of the obvious statements of, of individuality and think about measurement and think about mass production. I will. I'm coming to some conclusions already. But okay. I will, I'll leave that maybe for next time so I can think on it some more. Because it really does link in so many ways to things that we've talked about over the past couple hours but uh but yeah i will leave that and allow you to tell me about a dream tell okay me about, tell okay. me about your dream well this this lightens the whole thing up and i think is a a good way to uh to sort of end this episode but is it a uh, sex dream now it's it's oh. no this is a big culture dream this is a big culture spectacle dream okay okay uh, no, my sex dreams are too explicit to share, David. Even <laughs> even behind the paywall. Although I I, I, I will um, during happy hour, I've 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 saved up a few that that are uh, in a light enough vein to uh, to share. But in this one, I, I'm in uh, the 
what feels like the Everglades. Uh, I had a friend once who was a park ranger in the Everglades, and I went to uh, to hang out with him and, and party and barbecue, and a huge uh, bale of dope uh, washed up in front of his cabin, and I maybe that's what stuck with me. But in the dream, I'm in this uh, little John boat with an Apache uh, three-horse outboard, and... Um, I'm sort of bumbling around in the sawgrass, and I, I really don't, it's, it's, it's getting dark. It's on this really flaming sunset going dark. And I'm not really expecting to see anyone other than maybe drug runners or you know refugees or you know some oddball people out fishing or whatever. And I ran this bend, and I come upon this massive flotilla, boats of all kinds. There are alligators in the reeds. There are people drunk and in inflatables. It is on for young and old. And why are they all there? They are there because Jimmy Buffett is with a band. Uh, his choral whatever band on this giant floating pontoon floodlit stage. And like the crowd is doing the parrot head thing. They've got all the, you know, the colored Hawaiian Caribbean shirts. Some of them actually have parrot head sort of masks and stuff. It is, I just think, what is going on? Because, you know, why isn't he playing at a stadium or, or a resort or something? Because this is a private as in cult only religious festival and as he's performing he becomes transfixed and goes into this cult prophet mode that is phenomenally energized but also just really middle of the road and warm and friendly as he is, right? You know, he's known as a really friendly, sort of generous guy. And he's got an iguana on his shoulder and he gets everybody to stand up and sing Margaritaville with him. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I have to admit that, that I, I am actually stunned that that song is still on the radio every day. There's a Margaritaville in Las Vegas. I mean, he hit gold. Yeah. And as he's closing up and everyone is clapping and drunk and falling off into the water and the alligators are splashing, this beautiful heat lightning flares out over him and the stage itself goes dark. Except for him one light on him and he says no one can be happy all the time except us and that's the catch cry of the cult and I woke up thinking you know that's not really far off the mark that's kind of what he's managed to pull off yeah. so Maybe everything, at least in America, the model is either... It, well, it's not a corporation or a startup. or it, It's a cult. Mm -hmm. I love it. That's great. It's a lot to think about. Every time I have dreams like that, I think in the dream, 
I can't wait to tell XYZ about this. You know right. what I mean? Yeah. You ever like wake up excited because you're about to tell them about how you saw Jimmy Buffett in the Everglades and how he, he said no one can be happy all the time except for us and you wake up and you're like, ah, oh, dream. And you're like, huh, dream. You know? So it's a, it's a great thing to end the episode with. Thanks everybody for listening and we'll be back next week with more No Country. Yeah, thanks everyone. Be safe, be sane, be sensible, and look out for news about our other activities, happy hour, book club, courses. We're on the move and you are coming with us, please.